This is episode 29 of Collapse Talk, and you're listening to Gabriel. And I'm just hoping that y'all are doing well. I'm doing pretty okay this uh, early springtime. You know, it's good to have some sunlight back, so I've been going out and just working outside and, or, you know, just trying to get some vitamin D. I know I've taken some supplements, but yeah, um, I just, you know, I usually just have that seasonal depression with the winters, so it's just nice to get into the springtime and uh, summer, you know, climates. And yeah, um, what can I say? I mean, it's been an eventful couple of weeks, you know, every time I take a little break, something major happens or tragic actually in this case. So yeah, we'll just have to talk about it, you know, but real quick, I just want to make some plugs um, with Twitter at the Collapse Talk Pod. I had a pretty good, you know, couple days with Twitter. I made a uh, post about uh, Sean Head's recent video. Um, on the hell world her episode three and her work with in collaboration with post america so i made a little clip and that got some traction with the twitter community so yeah i just want to make a quick shout out there to give me a follow i mean i'm very much a boomer um on that site so i know um i can put some stuff that like aren't that doesn't really fly with the kids these days so yeah it's all right i mean you know I, i'm not doing it for popularity really i'm just you know putting my input into the ether. So yeah, anyway, so give me a follow there. Um, I also I also made another post um, quoting Lindsay Ellis' uh, post about like, you know, CIA uh, officials, you know, being incels essentially. And she actually made a mention about how, um, you know, she had a good laugh out of that. So I didn't get shoe on head to notice me, but Lindsay Ellis, she did say something. So that's nice. That kind of made my week. Um, but yeah, I'm still just very much on the bottom of the pole. So anyway, so that's there. And I also have an Instagram trying to, you know, do the multimedia, multi-platform, you know, trying to get myself out there. So yeah, so give me a follow on those sites or at those accounts. And yeah, so we'll just go on. So in this show, in this program, I uh, divide it up into different segments. So I talk mainly in uh, the domestic sense in the United States. You know, I'm trapped in a dying empire. Um, and in the international world, uh, just different geopolitical movements and crises that are occurring. And then also in the natural world, speaking on like weather, climate events, and, uh, you know, environmental, you know, mass extinction sort of deal. So yeah, you know, a collapse is just all-encompassing. It's a big umbrella. And... You know, I'm just a dude who really likes to talk about it. <laughs> so that's what you're going to get here. Although most of the time I can get a lot of stuff wrong. Although I have some articles pulled up, but we'll just go ahead. So, you know, speaking on our domestic area, we've had some major events happen. And I wanted to at least talk, you know, just right out of the gate about the most recent uh, mass shooting, as we can describe it. Um which was the killings of primarily Asian women, Asian American women in Atlanta, Georgia, who were working at spas, massage parlors. Uh, yeah, 
um, at the hands of this incel who was, as this, you know, fucking police chief said, or, you know, whatever uh, spokesman said, um, oh, it was just a f sexual frustration. You know, he had a bad day. So it's not entirely racially motivated. Although there are accounts of witnesses saying that he was making uh, some derogatory words about uh, Asian people and killing them all. So, yeah, I mean, it's no surprise, really. I mean, this plays right into the trope of the incels viewing Asian women as being fragile, vulnerable, submissive. I mean, that's very much a trope in that community. Yeah, and, you know, this just speaks again to the rising uh, violence against Asians and Asian Americans and just... Yeah, all, yeah, it, this is, you know, just examining this is so many different layers because it's like the racial motivation. Then there's also the misogyny aspect and the sex addiction. Or I mean, it's, I don't, it's not a sex addiction, but you, you can see that it's linked in a lot of ways. But, you know, there's just so many different layers to, to unpack on this. So um, I'm going to read from USA Today. Um, and it's uh, speaking on this event. So the title says, Stand Up, Fight Back, Atlanta Rally Decries Anti-Asian Violence, Mourns Spall Shooting Victims. So continuing from Atlanta, as people nationwide rallied in support of the nation's Asian American community after last week's killings in Georgia, hundreds gathered over the weekend in downtown Atlanta for a rally in March to honor the victims and decry anti-Asian violence. Quote, we have been invisible and ignored in our country for over a century. New York City-based actor Will Lex Ham told the crowd on Saturday, We are getting violently physically attacked. It took an elderly man in San Francisco to die to get attention. It took six Asian women to die in Atlanta to get people to care. End quote. Eight people were killed in Tuesday's rampage, six of them Asian women. Though the police say the suspect said he did not target them because of their race, the crime touched a nerve in the community already reeling from a year-long rise in anti-Asian incidents that have spiked in recent months. The crowd in Atlanta gathered near the state capitol, many holding signs reading, quote, Stop Asian Hate, as Ham, among the event's organizers, led them in a chant of Stand Up, Fight Back. Gabby Lynch, 32, carried a piece of cardboard that read, quote, Does this sign make me look submissive, end quote, the daughter of a Filipino man and a Korean-Japanese-Irish mother, just a side note, I, that's actually like a beautiful, um, like cultural mix. Like, I wonder how that life is like for them. Um, so I'll go on. Lynch said the event was her first rally and she was heartened to see the community support. Quote, it feels like home, like we are surrounded by family members, end quote, said Lynch, who was working in wholesaling in Atlanta. Quote, we need people to know that we are not just silent and quiet, end quote. Uh, newly elected Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia offered his support to the crowd and promised to use his position to fight discrimination, racism, and gun violence. The tragedy has prompted an outpouring of support as communities nationwide from Phoenix to Philadelphia gathered to mourn the dead. A coalition called the Asian American Leaders Table has compiled a list of such events around the country, some of them planned over the weekend or later this month. So I'm going to continue on because they do talk about this guy and I don't really want to mention his name, but they say um, that there was just a series of events in this man's life that just like caught, brought him to the breaking point 
watching. Let me read the names because they have all the people listed. So those killed Tuesday were Soon Chung Park, 74, Hyung Jung Grant, 51, Soon Cha Kim, 69, Young Ai Yui, 63, Delena Ashley Yuan, 33, Paul Andre Michaels, 54, Dao Yu Feng, 44, and Zhao Shi Tan, 49, who own Young's. Okay, and then they're also saying, you know, just a course of events. So the events Tuesday began late that afternoon when authorities say Long opened fire at Young's before driving 30 miles into Atlanta and killing four more people at two businesses, Gold Spa and Aromatherapy Spa. Police believe he was headed to Florida where he had meant to target additional spas when he was arrested about 150 miles south of Atlanta. And let me move on because he was saying, they were saying, um, essentially, I'm trying to find the paragraph, but essentially they were saying that he, he got uh, furloughed. Uh, he basically was unemployed and then he also got kicked out of his parents' house. So like, yeah, there was, um, okay, here we go. So uh, other video footage obtained by the Washington Post indicates Long 21 spent an hour outside Young's before entering the spa. An hour and 12 minutes later, he is seen leaving the location and getting into his car before police arrived, the newspaper said. More details about the suspect, more details about the suspect have been emerging. Records released to USA Today on Friday indicated that Long had been kicked out of his parents' home the day before the shooting and was emotional. Long also had been recently furloughed from his job at a trade show business because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the report said. The police have said he, uh, Long had indicated he committed the crimes because of a sex addiction. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there were just so many different things that went wrong in this guy's life. And yeah, he hit his breaking point. And then for whatever reason, he targeted Asian women. So, I mean, you know, it, it's not hard to see why he targeted that specific group. But then you also see... That, yeah, there were things going wrong in his life and he just hit his breaking point. So, you know, well, when I speak on, like, incel radicalization, like, I, I try to, like, of course, there are people who have just bad wiring in their head and they just view women, particularly women of different uh, racial groups, uh, you know, just in an objective sense or, in a, uh, you know, submissive sense, um, so yeah, I, I can certainly, I mean, of course, I see it unfold in real life. So the point that I always try to make about incelship, if you want to call it, because I'm certainly in that group, although I don't hurt women or harass women, like my issue is usually just my timidness and not um, being con confident when approaching women. Um, so uh, when I speak on this radicalization with the far-right community, or the outright, you could say, it has a lot to do with just the financial instability and the inability to work and attain wealth. Because that certainly, I mean, in a hyper-capitalist society, you know, if you're broke, that's going to be detrimental, detrimental to your mental health. And if you're just not traditionally attractive, you're just going to have a hard time. And this is why I also talk about because I, I know I might have some weird views about sex work, but it's not necessarily the sex work. It's just like the the commodification of it. Anyway, I don't want to stay too long on this. But I, I do believe that prostitution should be legalized. Because then guys like this 
wouldn't always happen. I mean, it's still going to happen. Like guys are just fucked up. I, you know, but if this dude could just go out and just bust his nut, <laughs> like, I, I think we wouldn't be having much of a problem, though he, he, he still had a sex addiction issue. So, or at least that's what they're saying, because obviously it's, there was still a racial angle. I don't know. Again, like I said, there's so much to unpack here. And it's tragic, of course. My condolences are to the victims and their family. You know, it, it's like we, we still need to create some pathway towards de-radicalization for guys like this. But then once they start blasting and not in the, the fun way, it, yeah, it's um, then there's no back. There's no going back. And then, of course, they need to be arrested and, you know, justice needs to be served. But, you know, there's a crisis of young men who just don't have any sexual partners. I mean, there is also another uh, graph that's been floating around Twitter about, you know, the rate of virginity among young men. And unfortunately, now I'm a statistic. And yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the financial instability, which does affect my self-esteem and my self-image and of course, social media as well. You know, there's a perpetuation of an image of, yeah, there's so many different factors. And again, also it, it's a lot about me, like just a lot of personal growth problems that I have to overcome, but you know, it's just unfortunate that I have to be in survival mode constantly and having to worry about keeping a roof over my head each month and then can't focus on forging uh, intimate relationships. I mean, honestly, if I didn't give a shit, I could just go out and have sex whenever I wanted to, but I've done some delving into my sexuality and I've realized I'm demisexual. That's what it's called. So it's people who are only comfortable having sex with those that they have intimate or emotional relationships with. So which is kind of strange, you know, living in such a hypersexualized age where if you're somebody who chooses to have sex with somebody that you're in love with, I'm not even saying that I'm waiting to marriage. I just want to make sure that I care about the person that I'm with. That that has to be a separate like level of sexuality or separate group. Like, oh, those are the people who I, I don't know. Anyway, I'm gonna move on because this is getting distracted. But anyway, of course, we're talking about this Atlanta shooting and yeah, you know, there's the racial supremacy, the racial hatred, the sex addiction, as the police are saying, and other factors involved with this. I'm just finding it curious that the police are saying that about him having a sex addiction. I feel like they try to coach that response out of him so they could, he could get a lower sentence. I, who knows? I, I really don't know. This is really messed up. And of course, now they're showing that the spokes guy, the, the police officer who was speaking, um, they're saying that he had posts as well, basically pro-Trump po posts, anti-Asian posts, perpetuating like the Chinese flu, uh, you know, myth. Anyway, so there's that. So that's speaking on the Atlanta shooting and this uh, particular character and also just the incel uh, you know, mass murderer trope that's continuing. I mean, it's guys like this that ruin it for guys like us who just genuinely are just socially awkward and just have just just more growth to do. You know, who don't we, we don't take out our frustration 
by killing and hurting people. Like if I'm just horny, I just I just masturbate. I just, I smoke pot. I masturbate. I like I'm really interested at the cross section of the incel community and the nofap community because I found that it's like it's not they're not that separate. Like they're the people the guys who shame themselves for uh, masturbating also have some pretty weird views on women in general. So yeah. So anyway, I'm gonna continue on. So that's the Asian or that's the Atlanta uh, shootings. But we also want to talk about this just rise in anti-Asian sentiments in the United States. And honestly, this isn't like it's new now because of the pandemic and because of people like Trump perpetuating the China flu, blaming China for bringing the disease here and, you know, trying to deflect responsibility from their terrible response. But I did want to speak about uh, just in general what people have been uh, talking about or you know their, their testimonies about attack and reports of attacks. I mean, a lot of uh, the victims in these cases are just elderly people who can't defend themselves. So that really shows that these people are just cowards because like I, I could never imagine like ever putting my hands on like an old person, even if they were like the most vile, like Trump supporter, like I just can't imagine like ever punching somebody like that, you know, because they're just frail and they're vulnerable. And, you know, like that's not even like a fight that you're just bullying, you know, so th these are bullies. These are cowards. And these are I mean, some of these reports are just terrible, but I'll, I'll continue. I'm reading from BBC. Um, so COVID, the, the title COVID hate crimes against Asian Americans on the rise. Um an elderly Thai immigrant dies after being shoved to the ground. A Filipino-American is slashed in the face with a box cutter. A Chinese woman is slapped in the face and then set on fire. These are just examples of recent violent attacks on Asian Americans. Part of a surge in abuse since the start of the pandemic a year ago. From being spat on and verbally harassed to incidents of physical assault. There have been thousands of reported cases in recent months. Advocates and activists say... These are hate crimes and often linked to rhetoric that blames Asian people for the spread of COVID-19. The FBI warned at the start of the COVID pandemic in the U.S. that it expected a surge in hate crimes against those of Asian descent. Federal hate crime data from 2020 has not yet been released, though hate crimes in 2019 were at their highest level in over a decade. Late last year, the United Nations issued a report that detailed an alarming level of racially motivated violence and other hate incidents against Asian Americans. It is difficult to determine the exact number for such crimes and instances of discrimination as no organizations or governmental agencies have been tracking the issue long term and reporting standards can vary to region. The advocacy group Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate said it received more than 2,800 reports of hate incidences directed at Amer Asian Americans nationwide last year. Local law enforcement is taking notice too. The New York City Hate Crimes Task Force investigated 27 incidents in 2020, a ninefold increase from the previous year. In Oakland, California, police have added patrols and set up a command post in Chinatown. And so they have a graph here showing the percentage of discrimination. And so they're saying that there was a 70 point or, okay, so 
the percentage of 20 the percentage of 2808 reported incidences from March to December 2020 and so 70.9% of that was verbal harassment uh 21.4 is shunning 8.7 is physical assault 6.4 uh is coughed spat on and 8% is workplace discrimination or refusal of service and then here are some other uh accounts of assaults that have occurred so an 84 year old Thai immigrant in San Francisco died last month after being violently shoved to the ground during his morning walk in Oakland a 91 year old singer was shoved to the pavement from behind god like i wish somebody would do that in, uh, i shouldn't say i wish if i saw that shit i would go wild an 89-year-old Chinese woman was slapped and set on fire by two people in Brooklyn. Like, these are fucking monsters. Uh, a stranger on the New York subway slashed a 61-year-old Filipino-American passenger's face with a box cutter. Asian-American restaurants employees in New York City told the New York Times they now always go home early for fear of violence and harassment. An Asian-American butcher shop owner in Sacramento found a dead cat likely intended for her, left in the store's parking lot. Police are investigating it as a hate crime. An Asian-American family celebrating a birthday at a restaurant in Carmel, California, was berated with racist slurs by a Trump-supporting tech executive. Uh, several Asian-Americans homeowners say they have been abused with racial slurs and had rocks thrown at their houses. That's insane. So that just shows you like the level of... Uh, violence and harassment that is at being thrown at this community and you notice also that it's mainly like working class poor people that are being harassed like this so again the, the people that are being targeted or doing the targeting the bullying and the violence they're cowards and they're picking on people they know are incapable of fighting back whether it's because they physically can't or because they just don't have the means or the resources to do so and of course, luckily, you know, thankfully, the law enforcement is doing what they can to protect uh, these communities, you know, adding patrols and command centers and the communities to, you know, step up. Uh, it's still, I mean, this is going to be bad. I mean, even especially if there's a increased uh, conflict or tension with China. You know, I know I talk extensively on China, but I, I try to make it around the authoritarianism of their government, not necessarily the people, although I can still talk about some weird customs that are just, that, that they might necessarily be perpetuated on a grander scale, but it's still something that needs to be called out, you know, but I, I, I digress. Um, it, yeah, so we have that, and of course there are now reports of Asian Americans, you know, buying guns and, you know, just arming themselves, which is great. This is why I talk about the Second Amendment, um, you know, because we saw in the Rodney King riots, like the the Koreans aren't fucking around, like they're not. They know they're not. So, and that's a, that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing because people should defend themselves and they should protect their communities and their homes, their businesses. Uh, that's what America's that that is what America is about. So. You know, again, it's terrible that we're in this position to begin with, but like people are going to soon realize 
people are going to realize soon enough that once they take matters into their own hands, then they'll have some true agency and they'll have some true leverage because, you know, it's not only just uh, protecting yourself against these criminals and these vagrants, but also like having a step up and, you know, actually having some leverage on the, you know, with the police. I mean, I don't mean in the confrontational sense, but just like equal partners. Because again, I talk about community policing and, uh, you know, you, you look at areas in Mexico where like there's just no police and it's purely just a community patrolling and keeping themselves safe. So anyway, I, I just want to, yeah, I always do this, like I talk on a topic and then I'm just going all over the place. So there's that with this um, surge of violence against Asian Americans. I mean, it, the the Chinese are like the only group of people that have like literally been banned from entering the country, at least historically, for, for like a couple decades, for a good portion of the 20th century. So, yeah, yeah, this is something that runs deep in America, Asian American xenophobia. Uh, I mean, we have the Japanese internment camps, you know. Yeah, like whenever I talk about FDR, I have to be like, oh shit, like, yeah, the, the internment camps are bad. So, I can't defend that. Then when I talk about FDR, I'm mainly talking about just his, his economic policies, but I know racially he was bad. <laughs> that wasn't exactly there. But, yeah. So I'll continue on. Kind of just got lost there for a minute. But we have this that is occurring. And I also just wanted to speak on some more economic, uh, you know, measures that were implemented by our Congress. So we had the uh, stimulus package, you know, being uh, ratified or passed. And we've got our stimulus checks. I got my 1400. So yeah, we're just going to have to see how that lives and, you know, or how we can live off of that. Cause I don't think we're going to get another stimulus package unless things get really, really bad. But yeah, I, I still, they're, they're still saying that this 1400 was topping off the 600. It's like, here you go. We gave you the 2000. Like, no, you didn't. You gave me 1400. Trump gave me 600. So anyway, the, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy, man. It's crazy. Every other country, they had a whole UBI deal here. Stay home. We'll give you 2000 a month. But like, we, we literally had to get out in the streets and like, just demand like pennies, like just something. Anyway, so we had that package that was that went through, and there were other measures that were passed. And uh, I think the one that most people were paying attention to was the um, the loans and grants that were given out to uh, farmers of color. I guess you can say just you know non-white farmers, you know Asian farmers, Hispanic, Native farmers, Black farmers, because they've been uh, systemically discriminated against by the Department of Agriculture or just other agriculture uh, regulators. Um, yeah, and of course you have people like Stephen Crowder. Like it's it's wild to me that people like him still exist, and you know I'm sure everybody's seen it by now. Uh, his uh, poor impression of you know I don't know the. Like, he's a failed comedian for a reason. And so, you know, you see him talking, doing that stereotypical, you know, I'm a, I'm a plow that ass. Like, you know, just, 
so dumb. Like, it was... Like, I was just having an involuntary response, like, laughing at it, but only because it was so bad and so obviously racist. But these guys were genuinely, like, shooting the shit. And, like, it's like, huh, this is kind of surprising. There's not a black person in sight, and they're talking all this shit about black people. Hmm. Like, the most, like, non-white person there is uh, the one Asian guy. I, I mean, I don't mean to, like, like say it in that sense but it just it's very interesting that these guys are making racial jokes about black people and there's not a one black person in the entire studio huh very interesting so yeah so of course we have that to deal with i mean who knows but anyway so we have of course the stimulus package but then we also have the $15 fiasco that occurred with the senators like Kristen Cinema, who, you know, felt that she needed to be a little quirky, you know, doing her little curtsy as she thumbed down. Like, can you imagine, like, in the gladiator, like, arena, <laughs> he has the sword to the fallen gladiator, and he looks up to the stand, and she sees, and, and he sees Cinema. Just doing her thumbs down with their little, you know, yes, kill him. <laughs> Feed the Christians to the tigers. Um, Yeah. But wow, man. But this whole thing, because everybody's focusing on cinema, which is very curious to me. Like the the people who are posing, the, the, the people who are in our way aren't necessarily the Republicans, because we could do practically anything right now. The Democrats, I mean. Um. But it's people like Cinema and Joe Manchin that get in our way, and then the Democrats say, "Well, it's these senators that are causing the problems." Okay, but then whenever a true progressive runs against them, you completely like you completely sabotage their campaign. Like so, yeah. This is what I say about the Democratic establishment. They're not serious about any of this. They're going to put the blame. They're going to scapegoat. But they're not actually going to step up. So, I, I genuinely don't think that we're going to get the $50 minimum wage. And if that doesn't happen, that could really, like, be the end for America. If if essential workers, because that's what they were calling us a year ago, you know, we were essential workers. If we can't get a living wage, then we might as well just throw in the bag, because, like... What she basically said was, oh, surf them for all, all the workers, your, your serfs. So, yeah, man, uh, we're just going to have to see how this unfolds. But, you know, it was like a parliamentary. I didn't even know what the fuck that was when they said it. I'm like, wait, parliament, what? We're a parliament? But that, you know, an unelected official that could absolutely be overruled because that president had been established already. Uh, Kamala Harris wasn't serious about it. Joe Biden's not serious about it. They're not. And you see a lot of liberals actually like saying, no, we don't have to raise it because that's going to affect businesses and they're going to lay off people. Hey, they're laying off people um, because they, the business owners, I mean, they don't want to lose their bottom line because... For, for whatever reason, because they need the biggest cut of the pie. And if they have to give up 1% of that piece, 
they would rather just kick the people out so they could keep that 1%. Like, you know, like, that's what I have to explain it. And, of course, they're going to say, well, these business... You realize that a lot of these liberals, they're not serious about attacking this uh, hierarchy, social hierarchy. They benefit just fine. It's really hard because, you know, I'm sitting here as a working person, like I'm a working man. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then I'm also surrounded by people who are not necessarily our business owners, but they're part of that hierarchy and level. So... It's very difficult to explain to them. I mean, primarily, these people have generational wealth. So it's, it's difficult because they want to maintain their position. Well, we can't just be all equal. What do you mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it's hard to come out as a communist when, like, everybody around you is so, like, ingrained with, like, propaganda. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like. They already got me into therapy, therapy because they were saying I was getting radicalized by people online, even though most of this stuff is from what I learned in class. Yeah, and if I completely come out, I mean, like, I, I would not be surprised if they try to get me committed or take the power of attorney away from me. So, it, it, yeah, it's something that I have to navigate carefully because now, they, like, they could definitely, like, narc on me, like, oh, well, he's saying all this stuff on social media and the FBI is just... Oh, please continue. So anyway, so the Democrats killed the $15 minimum wage. And uh, yeah, that could be, that could spell a lot of trouble. That could spell trouble for working class Americans. I mean, I basically quit my job because the, jo the, the payment that I was getting wasn't enough. And I was working these terrible conditions. I mean... It's been a couple of weeks since I left and my skin's still a bit messed up from that because I was doing dishwashing and my skin was reacting to the chemicals. So I don't know what I can do outside of that. But yeah, man, part of the reason I left was because I was kind of, you know, it, it's strange that they say you can't talk about your salary to workers and that's normalized now. It's normalized that you shouldn't coordinate and speak with your workers about, you know, being compensated fairly. So, yeah, I didn't necessarily ask people, but there were moments where they, the managers, they left their computer screens, you know, unattended. And it was like in the middle of the, the whole kitchen. So like I could basically just look and I was seeing the salaries that the other people were making. And I was working $10 an hour and I'm sitting here like I have the most physically demanding job and I'm getting paid the least, excuse me. So that's one reason why I left. Um, and, you know, I'm gonna try to, you know, I'm really gonna try to budget this time. I can probably live off of the 1400 for a while. But honestly, you know, I'm, it's not that I don't like working, I just don't like making other people rich. That's what I've come to realize. So I just need to make money the way that I can and actually save. I mean, hell, I could lose a couple pounds anyway. I don't know. It's not, I don't even like go out and like buy expensive clothes. I just buy food because <laughs> I'm too lazy to cook. So that's just something that I got to work on. Because um, the food prices, especially like, you know, takeout stuff is going to rise exponentially. And I'm already a pretty big dude. So I could do with some 
I could do with losing some pounds. So anyway, so there's that, those economic stimulus packages that were uh, passed and others that were killed. <laughs> um, and then we also have the eviction moratoriums that are ending the 31st of this month. So who knows what's going to happen after that. Um, I'll tell you this much. I'm going to use my stimulus money to buy plate armor. So, yeah, I'm going to have to do that because I don't think things are going to bode well for the summer. So, yeah. So we have that going on. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that I haven't been evicted in the last year because that would have, I mean, I already have credit problems. So if I have an eviction on my record, that is really going to hurt me. <laughs> so... So there's that. Um, so we'll just continue on. So we have um, to also talk about vaccine distribution and uh, just how the population is getting access to it. And you notice that um, in many places, you know, I guess in the United States, it, the, for whatever reason, they're just not like, again, the, the response... So not only the quarantine, the lockdown, but now to this vaccine distribution is just incompetent. And who knows? Because I, I still don't even know where to, to get it. And I've tried to look up, you know, different pharmacies and different locations. And I guess I don't qualify for it. And I see a lot of folks on my social media, you know, posting their vaccine card. And of course, these are people with, you know, a couple, couple of dollars to spend. So... Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it really is demonstrating the class disparity and again, the just the main problem that has always been the issue in this country is just, it's always money. Even though we have unlimited resources, it's just the prioritization of where those resources go. So, yeah, so I want to talk at least about California because we, we have the California response and then I'll also talk about the Texas response. So... California among worst in getting vaccines to vulnerable populations, CDC report finds. Uh, continuing, about a quarter of California's population has received one shot of the coronavirus vaccine so far, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. However, most of the shots so far appear to have gone to populations that are less vulnerable than others. State health officials say they are working to improve those numbers. The CDC issued a report last week that measured counties' vaccine rollouts with regards to social vulnerability. The vulnerability index included several factors including race, education, poverty level, and housing, which the agency noted has also been linked to higher coronavirus rates. The results of this study indicate that COVID-19 vaccinations coverage was lower in high vulnerability counties than in low vulnerability counties a finding largely driven by socioeconomic disparities, the report finds, you know, as I pointed out. You know, um, the report examined roughly 49 million shots distributed between 14 or December 14th to March 1st. Of the 48 states surveyed in the report, California, California ranked 44th when it came to vaccinations among residents in the highest socially vulnerable counties. About one in four shots went to those counties, the CDC said. The states that ranked below California in vaccine distribution in the most vulnerable counties were Kansas, Maryland, Idaho, and New Hampshire. The CDC report acknowledged that states have different vaccination rollout strategies and that because do doses were given 
out based on population densities, less vulnerable counties may have received more of the shots. The agency also the agency also reiterated that each state's priority list for eligible patients differed. During the earlier months of the rollout, California prioritized medical workers, the elderly, and the highest risk residents. The CDC highlighted Montana, Arizona, and Alaska, where 40% of the vaccines went to high socially vulnerable counties. The report noted that those states took early action to address vulnerable populations through outreach, particularly through tribal health organizations directing the shots to those communities and, in some cases, offering free transportation to sites. Vaccination promotion, outreach, and administration might focus on high vulnerability populations within counties, for example, providing resources to federally qualified health centers when socioeconomic disparities are identified, uh, the report recommended. On March 4th, California Governor Gavin Newsom and state health officials announced a plan to double the allocation of vaccines to the hardest hit areas in order to address the inequities of the vaccine rollout. In a statement to ABC News, the California Department of Health said the CDC report underscores their latest efforts to get the shots to the state's most vulnerable communities with the, quote, with the implementation of the statewide vaccine network, the state will be able to accurately collect data on who has been vaccinated and direct vaccines and resources to the communities where vaccines have lagged, the department said in the statement. And I'm reading this from ABC News. Um, so effectively, you know, they're just saying that you know, yeah, it's, it's uh, social economic disparities, although the Department of Health is pointing more towards vaccine or population densities. So who knows? But without a doubt, if you have the resources and the money to get it, like it should, it's not that difficult. And, you know, again, like I just need to stop keep, keeping my heads in social media because I do have uh, wealthier friends who, you know, they're posting about buying a new home or, you know, oh, I got the vaccine and oh, I'm having a baby. <laughs> and I'm just sitting here like I'm surviving. So that's, that's something. So, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, you know, again, I avoided getting sick. I, I haven't even taken an antibody test, so I should definitely do that soon. But I've avoided, you know, getting sick because I'm a social recluse and yeah. So, there's that in California, but then, you know, when we look at Texas, and this is also tied towards the storm, Texas storm, and the recovery efforts that are being made. But, you know, of course, our governor, he had to, you know, I guess, distract from the disaster. And he's saying, oh, well, uh, we don't have to wear masks anymore. All right. And businesses are open 100%, which is crazy. I'm, I certainly haven't uh, taken my mask off and I've been to a couple of businesses where, you know, people are, aren't wearing masks and they kind of are looking at me like, huh, look at this pussy or, you know, anyway, I, I yeah, again, I, I'm back in my delivery gig work and you meet some interesting folks when you're doing that. So I'm reading from ABC 13, channel 13 from Houston. And so I just wanted to read about 
the recovery efforts there. And, you know, I, I like that dynamic that the city of Houston has with the rest of the sit, the state. Um, cause I, I genuinely think if Texas tried to secede from the union, like Houston would just be its own city state. <laughs> so anyway, um, so yeah, we're talking about this. So, um, quote, or just continuing as the city leaders continue to fight to keep COVID-19 under control while trying to recover from a historic winter storm, Mayor Sylvester Turner says, though help is underway, there's still a long way to go. During a briefing on Monday, Turner released the details of the resilient Houston one-year report. Um, and there's a tweet from Mayor Turner, uh, quote, today our city published resilient Houston one-year report, which highlights the progress we have made to keep uh, which highlights the progress we have made to become a more resilient city. I appreciate our partners for working with us. And, you know, he he quotes his partners being, um, you know, Shell and other different organizations. Um, but yes, uh, the Resilient Houston is, or Resilient Houston is an initiative created to help the city properly prepare for future disasters, um, such as hurricanes and extreme heat waves. And man, we get some heat. Um, this is going to be a bad place to live when that wet bulb hits. So, um, yes, the initiative launched in February 2020. According to Chief Resilience Officer Marissa Ajo, the city is hitting most of its goals, but several projects were impacted by the pandemic. The report released one. The report released on the city's website lists 18 key targets the city focused on at the start of the initiative, which included goals such as providing Houstonians with preparedness training damn are they gonna we're gonna become a prepper city oh damn i'm I'm with that now in 2020 the city trained 5750 people another target includes investing 50 billion in major recovery mitigation and modernization projects that will increase resilience by 2040 last year the city invested 77.6 billion and they have the full report here. If you go into channel 13, there's a PDF that you could uh, get of the whole report. And uh, yeah, so we'll continue on, at least with the winter storm recovery, uh, which uh, hit pretty hard. I mean, a lot of these communities have been, uh, they're still struggling for water now, even now. And uh, they hopefully they get it under control um, by summer because people are going to need it. So... Yes, so last week, Turner announced details of a new winter storm relief fund, the latest Houston and Harris County Joint Disaster Recovery Assistance Program. During Monday's briefing, Turner said donors have released $7.1 million so far, and out of that total, $1.6 million have been set aside for as an emergency grant to support Houston families and those in need of home repairs after the winter storm. He said those seeking help can start by texting Houston Freeze or Houston Ayuda from Spanish or for Spanish speakers to 898211. Once you send the text, you will get a text back for eligibility and application guidelines. So that's the winter recovery and just the future preparedness programs that the city has. Um, now we want to talk about the vaccine distribution and how the city is managing this uh, suspension of uh, mask mandates and COVID regulations, you know, now, you know, hey, business is open. 
get back get back out there we we need you to spend <laughs> anyway um so yes more vaccines on their way uh turner said the city of houston's health department will get its first shipment of the johnson and johnson vaccine on tuesday this would include about six thousand doses johnson and johnson's vaccine is designed to be given as a single dose that means no follow-up visits none of the red tape needed to make sure people return for the second do dose uh, and none of the worry about making sure a second dose is available at the right time. This certainly will be the best option for our transition or for our transient population because you only need that one dose, said, the, said Turner. He said the city will also be getting another 9,000 doses of Moderna vaccine. The 15,000 doses are in addition to the vaccine supply at the FEMA back site at NRG Park. So, yeah. And then they also go on to talk with the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, and he's talking essentially about, you know, how this uh, uh, suspension or, you know, at least the re relaxing of these COVID rules and regulations with the mask mandate are certainly going to make things worse. So, yeah, last week, Governor Greg Abbott said that Texas is looking at when it will be able to lift all statewide orders. Uh, related to the coronavirus pandemic and that an announcement is forthcoming quote we're working right now on evaluating when we're you're we're working right now on evaluating when we're going to be able to remove all statewide orders and we will be making announcements about that pretty soon and quote abbott said without giving a specific time frame at the moment at the time houston health authority dr david purse said he believes this is absolutely not the time to do that. It is too early, he said. Uh, if you consider how many people have been infected, you've got a tiny amount of vaccine. There's still a huge portion of the population that's still susceptible to becoming infected. I hope that the governor uh, will consider differently. There was considerable talk about another wave in April. No one wants another wave. Mayor Turner echoed that st sentiment saying he recalls when restrictions were lifted too early last year, leading to COVID-19 cases to increase. And they're also pointing out towards the uh, the discoverance of the UK variant. And it's actually interesting how they find out about this. Um, they literally test the samples of uh, wastewater sewage. So that's actually like pretty interesting that they can do that. Um, just testing shit and seeing that, oh, we got the new variant. Very nice. I mean, who knows what other diseases they can discover uh, by testing and sampling. So, yeah. So that's what's happening in Houston. We got at least the, uh, you know, at least uh, in some level, our city government and municipality is taking care of it. Or at least the best that they can. Because, you know, they still need, you know, competence on the state level. Um, but, yeah. So we also have that that's happening in Houston with the uh yeah with the covid vaccine and also the texas winter storm recovery but also what's happening now is that there's been a recent spike in crime i don't know if necessarily this is a houston thing or maybe this is a grander uh, texas problem but yeah there's been some serious uh homicides it, homicide issues um they're saying it's up by up 30 percent which is crazy or at least you know given the the year to date um, yeah, we have like 94 homicides when last year at the same time we had about like 60 or 50 homicides. So this is going to be 
pretty bad and already there's like a like there's some very uh there's some wild areas in houston that i've had to not i've had to avoid but yeah yeah I mean, there's so many crazy stories i read this one tragic story where in this family i can't even imagine being in this family's position but they um they had one they had one member of the family lose three children in a car accident three sons tragic and then not even like a week later his niece was killed a six-year-old niece was killed and shot by some family member i don't know the relation but over spilt water or something and i yeah so this family they lost four kids in the span of like a, a week it's it's tragic i could not even imagine being in that position like i'd just be i'd be broken honestly so, you know, reading, you know, when you're seeing the interviews of these people, like, they're still, of course, they're grieving and they're sad, but like the way they're able to articulate and, you know, not to be, not to sound stereotypical, but like in like hood areas, you know, the way they're able to articulate how they're feeling while, you know, just grieving, it, it's, I, people are so resilient and I, I really admire it, but like, I would be a mess, honestly, um, so, yeah, so that's what's happening in Houston. And, you know, we had Chief Acevedo. He is stepping down. He's going to Miami PD, you know, right as it seems that uh, crime is about to become a huge problem, which I'm you know concerned about riots in Houston this summer. So that's why I'm getting my plate armor. Uh, yeah, man, you know, not that I would try to drive through that, but like, I, I don't know, because my family's in there and. It's like, what what can I do? Because the police aren't going to help us. They're not. They're they're really not. So, what can I do? Except protect my mother. That's really the, the most I can hope for. Um, but anyway, um, just speaking on Miami because, as I said, Acevedo he's leaving Houston for Miami, and of course, we, last week we had spring break, and there's been some interesting reports out of there. Um, where Miami police, you know, they had to enforce a um, curfew because an 8 p.m. curfew because people are acting the fool, you know. Um, yeah, there was a fighting, rowdiness, riots, essentially, uh, shootings. I mean, some real like Sodom and Gomorrah type shit, you know, and. You know, on listening to me, we you know talk about these issues, or you know, talking about say like partying and living a vulgar lifestyle. Like, you know, I know I sound like a boomer or some kind of puritan in a lot of sense, but like, this is what I'm. You know, I'm not against partying and drinking and you know doing drugs. I guess even though I don't do anything harder than like psychedelics or pot, but it's not. There's, there's nothing wrong with that inherently, but you know, when you're out in the public and you're causing a disturbance and putting people's lives in danger, that's when you're crossing a line. And it's very easy, you know, when, when you have people who don't live modest, modest lives and live vulgar, they live a hedonistic lifestyle, a vulgar lifestyle, it's not a surprise when you have thousands of them in a small space. Uh, lawlessness and anarchy and violence becomes the norm and of course now we saw it and of course the police had to step in 
but now they're saying like the, the, the they're now just saying the police um that the police are saying these crowds are becoming confrontational they're surrounding the police like hey, this is a recipe for disaster it really is and you know i'm very familiar with miami uh, my father is from that town or he immigrated there so that's where he lived um so to see you know these outsiders because that's primarily what these people are they're outsiders trying to you know party up woo miami you know spring break these fucking kids man i just i i just i don't under i don't understand the appeal of going out getting drunk you know loud music you're surrounded by people who are pretty obnoxious to be honest pretty obnoxious and have no understanding of life but you know again they're they're kind of like it's not necessarily their fault because it's just the culture that is perpetuated of going out you know living life yeah we're young we're young and we're immortal and i can do whatever i want with my body who cares i mean you only live once <laughs> you know anyway so I'll, I'll continue on again. I sound like a boomer when I criticize this, but like, I like to party, but this is too far. You know, this is too much. So anyway, uh, Miami Beach police fired pepper balls. I'm reading from CNN. Miami Beach police fired pepper balls into crowds of partiers and arrested at least a dozen people late Saturday as the city took extraordinary measures to crack down on spring breakers who officials have said are out of control. The aggressive enforcement actions came just hours after Miami Beach mayor Dan Gelber declared a state of emergency and set an 8 p.m. curfew, saying the crowds that have descended on the city recently are more than we can handle. Too many are coming, really, without the intention of following the rules, and the results have been a level of chaos and disorder that is something more than we can endure, Gelber told CNN's Anna Cabrera. Uh, Saturday night, hundreds of mostly maskless, mostly maskless people remained in the streets well after the 8 p.m. curfew, with, siren, with sirens blaring, police opened fire with pepper balls, a chemical irritant similar to paintballs, into the crowd, causing a stampede of people fleeing. Video from CNN affiliate WPLG shows. And uh, uh, Miami Beach. I mean, like, you, you look at this fucking image of people just out. And even if they were wearing a mask, it wouldn't matter because they're literally like shoulder to shoulder all rubbing and sweating on each other. I mean, these are people primarily shirtless or in bikinis. Like, it's just, uh, like, ah, uh. even, even without the pandemic, that's kind of gross. Like, I don't want to be in that situation. So, yeah, uh, police in Miami Beach said in early sun, police in Miami Beach said early Sunday, they arrested at least a dozen people following the start of the curfew. Officers began dispersing crowds at 8 p.m. and ultimately achieved a satisfactory level of compliance police spokesperson ernesto rodriguez told cnn more than 50 people have been arrested and eight firearms confiscated since friday according to a tweet from the miami beach police department on sunday it, the 8 p.m curfew and road closures in the city's entertainment district will be in effect until tuesday uh gelber said at a news conference sunday gelber said at a news conference saturday the causeways to Miami Beach from the mainland will be closed to non-local traffic starting 9 p.m. for the next few nights, Gulver said. Uh, the curfew has also been extended. Uh, so Sunday, the Miami Beach 
City Commission declared the 8 p.m. curfew would be in, be in effect Tuesday through Sunday until at least March 30th. The commission said City Manager Raul Aguila uh, will have the option to extend it to two more week-long increments through April 13th. Uh, the goal here is to really contain the overwhelming crowds of visitors and the potential for violence disruption and damage to and damage to property, whether intentional or not, Agula said. Unfortunately, this is the last thing that I ha had wanted to do, but this is spring break like no other. This is a spring break like no, no other. He said, not all people that visit Miami Beach are bad. Come to Miami Beach with the intent of breaking the law and disrupting our quality of life. But this is a different situation, and it calls for drastic measures. The attempted crackdown comes as Florida has thrown it, open its doors to tourists. After a year of coronavirus lockdowns and restrictions around the country, Governor Ron DeSantis has bragged that the state is an oasis of freedom during the pandemic, and the stir-crazy are flocking to the state's restriction-free beaches and nightlife. Gilbert told CNN the biggest issues with the crowds have been at night. It feels like a rock concert wall-to-wall -wall people over blocks and blocks. So yeah, so when we talk about the horde, I guess in the prepper community, this is what I guess we're referring to. These are people who the only satisfaction they can draw out of life is through consumption and just, you know, partying. And, you know, th these are the people that they have to spend. The only way they can feel any fulfillment is buying the best clothing, the newest thing, uh, eating overpriced food, getting drunk. I, I mean, I don't know. Again, this is not, it's not inherently wrong to travel and party and, you know, have fun, you know, like th those things are not bad, but when you overindulge in it, this is what you get when you overindulge in it. And this is the only way you can draw any sort of satisfaction and you multiply this with hundreds of thousands of people in a confined space, yeah, it's going to get wild. It's going to get bad, especially when those hormones are flaring up and everybody's horny. Fuck, man. Like, you know, like, we, we saw this a year ago. We, we saw this. Hey, if I get coronavirus, I get it, bro. Hey, man, you know, you, you only live once, man. We're immortal, bro. We're going to live forever. Like, like, wow, man. I, yeah. This is why, fuck, dude. Oh, my God. So just imagine these people when there's truly, like, like, like food shortages. Imagine these people when we have to, like, ration it out and, like, there's no other option. These people are going to go fucking buck wild. And they're going to ruin it for everybody. Again, it's always a small group of people who ruin it for everybody. You know, that uh, incel in Atlanta, he ruins it for guys who genuinely are just socially awkward and can't get laid he ruins it for us and these people who act a fool the minute they you know the minute they start drinking and dancing that you know this is how you get footloose all right this is how it happens man so be responsible you know think of your parents and how they're gonna be ashamed of you you know they see you they see your face on cnn getting hit in the face with pepper balls like, come on. Like, I, I just, I can't. Again, I know I sound like a boomer, but I mean, like, come on. Like, they had to declare a state of emergency because y'all can't just act right. 
you know? Anyway, I digress because I feel like in a lot of ways I'm preaching to the choir. No, nobody in this crowd is going to listen to what the fuck I'm saying. So it's on deaf ears. But anyway, uh, so that is what I want to talk about, at least in the uh, domestic sphere. I mean, there's a lot that I could have mentioned about, you know, just just mundane, like, you know, issues. But I really just wanted to talk about the basic, like, infrastructure or uh you know pandemic response economic problems and also just uh different uh civil disorders disturbances you know i guess i'll just have to continue on i just don't want to get mugged uh, bogged down by like just the mundane like drama because ultimately that just distracts from the major issue of reform you know of real progressive policies that would help working people so that was what I wanted to speak on, at least in the domestic field, a domestic field, and uh, I'll continue on into the international. So to open up with the uh, international field, I wanted to speak on the Myanmar situation, uh, which is effectively now turning into a revolt by the people. Uh, so you know, if you haven't kept up, the military junta launched a coup against the civilian government claiming election fraud. And yeah, the people are fighting back. And, you know, um, this is a, you know, a pretty good demonstrator that, you know, you don't exactly need like a fully armed population to fight back against, you know, an oppressive government. Although a lot of people are dying from this, you know, um, so I'm reading from Reuters, right? Um, and, you know, the shows that the military junta faces calls to halt bloodshed, but more die in anti-coup protests. And yeah, I mean, these police and these uh, military are being, I mean, it's basically like a Tiananmen Square in like every city at this point, or it hasn't gotten to that point, but it, it, it's going to happen. I mean, uh, yeah, they're serious, man. They're using some serious munitions against the civilians. So, right, Reuters, um, quote, international pressure on Myanmar's military junta to halt repression of pro-democracy protests following last month's coup increased on Friday. But on the streets, security forces shot dead at least nine demonstrators in an unrelenting crackdown. Calls for dialogue and the end to the bloodshed came from several of Myanmar's Southeast Asian neighbors, led by Indonesia, an unusual stance in regional diplomacy. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned what he denounced as the military's continuing brutal violence. A firm, unified international response was urgently needed, he said, quoted by the spokesman. The U.S. House of Representatives approved legislation condemning the coup and lawmakers decried the increasingly harsh tactics used to suppress the demonstrations that were, have swept over Myanmar since the overthrow of the elected government by Aung San Suu Kyi on February 1st. Uh, the total number of people killed in weeks of unrest has risen to 234 based on a tally by the Assistance Association. The number of people killed in weeks of unrest has risen to 234 based on a tally by the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners Activist Group, but crowds of protesters turned out again on Friday. Security forces opened fire in low security fires opened fire in the central town of Akbang as they tried to clear a protesters barricade, media witnesses reported. Uh, security forces came to remove or quote Security forces came to remove barriers, but the people resisted and they fired, end quote. The witness, who declined to be identified, said by telephone. An official with Ong Bang's 
Funeral service told Reuters eight people were killed, seven on the spot, and one wounded person who died after being taken to the hospital. The spokesman for the junta has, was not available for comment, but has previously said that security forces have used force only when necessary. One protester was killed in the northeastern in the northeastern town of Lao Cai, or Lao Ka. The Myanmar Now News portal said one person was shot and killed in Myanmar's main city of Yangon. Social media posts showed Reuters could not confirm that death. Uh, Police ordered people in some Yangon neighborhoods to dismantle barricades and have been hunting for protest leaders. Residents said parts of Yangon are under martial law. Demonstrators were also out in the city, in the second city of Mandalay, the central towns of Myangyang, Katha, and I'm sorry, I can't say these words. I mean, they're they're pretty nice saying um, witnesses and media reported. The military has also shown no sign of being swayed and has defended its takeover, which derailed a slow transition to democracy in a country that has been ruled by the army for most of its post-independent. The military has shown no sign of being swayed and has defended its takeover, which derailed a slow transition to democracy in a country that has been ruled by the army for most of its post-independence history. It says a November 8th election won by Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy was fraudulent and its claims were ignored by the Electoral Commission. It has promised a new election but not set a date and has placed Myanmar under a state of emer- under a state of democracy. I, I think I should be emergency. Anyway, uh, Suu Kyi, 75, faces accusations of bribery and other crimes that could see her banned from politics and jailed if convicted. Her lawyer, sa- her lawyer says... The charges are trumped up. The Nobel Peace Laureate, who has demon, who has campaigned for democracy in Myanmar for three decades, is being held at an undisclosed location. Authorities have tightened restrictions on internet services, making information increasingly difficult to verify, and also clamped down on private media. Yeah, so this is a pretty harsh crackdown, and it could certainly escalate. I mean, they're saying like 230 people have died. That's a crazy number, and that's certainly higher. And I've also read reports where uh, they're now pursuing doctors and paramedics who are giving medical aid to the protesters. And I saw one clip of a cop just shooting at the protesters inside the ambulance. Like, this is some real, like, like thuggery that's going on out here by the police. Um, And hopefully, you know... There are some that are that have a conscience. I, I can imagine the situations like this. A lot of the people who go into the military and the police, you know, there's that one side that wants to go for the power. Then the other side that goes for the public service duty to your country. And also because it's just an easy paycheck. So who knows? I mean, and it's the same problem here in the United States. I mean, a lot of the cops that go in, go for the power and also because it's just a guaranteed paycheck. And I mean, we're basically a police state. And, you know, I forgot to mention, actually, in the domestic uh, field um, that we have, like legislation now in Kentucky being proposed, making it illegal to insult or mock police. So, yeah, it's solely happening here. So it's interesting to see that dy- this dynamic in a third world country like Myanmar, 
or quote a third world country, I should say, and the response in the international community when we didn't have like basically like the same thing happen this summer. Okay, I mean, like they haven't used live ammunition yet, but they will. I mean, I mean, they, they will, and these police and you know, of course, the pro police people, they're gonna justify it. But man, it, this is um, when you look at stuff like this happening, and you look at the international community lecturing them, and then you see their response to their own police violence. It's just like it's calling it's the pot calling the kettle black in a lot of ways. Um, but of course, our police haven't been, you know, just shooting into crowds indiscriminately with live ammunition, at least not yet. So it's just, it's about, it's going to happen. So that's Myanmar and the political crisis there. And I also like talked about the connection between Myanmar's military and China and on closer research and inspection that they do have a bit of a link. So that is definitely another reason why. They're coming out against Myanmar because it's they're not under there. The the junta is not under the Western sphere of influence. If you get if you catch my drift, you know. So yeah, I, I yeah it's, it's this is the game. This is their game. So anyway, so yeah, there's just been interesting images coming out. I mean, the people who are fighting back are brave. They're just normal civilians, you know, standing up and. Uh, it's getting pretty medieval, you know, there's people out there with shields and, you know, the Testudo Roman formation. I mean, you know, that, you know, that formation has stood the test of time because it works. Um, you know, they're fighting against the police and now the people, there's some images of people using bow and arrows. So, yeah, man, they can, you know, try to take our guns away, but we still have archery and medieval tactics that can hold up. Of course, you know, we have drones. So they don't really need to get the ground soldiers in most of the time. But yeah, that's in Myanmar. But there's also been other protests and clashes that have been occurring. Um, and it's not necessarily, you know, an election issue, but mainly to do with women's rights that has been occurring in Mexico. And I covered this last year also that they had a similar riot and uh, demonstration of women standing up against uh, female violence, female murder. I mean, Mexico has a pretty severe problem with violence against women, Latin America in general. Um, and there's been, you know, several like uh, legislations that have been occurring in Latin America considering abortion or, you know, allowing abortion, I should say. So, that, you know, it's, it's been victories for women's rights. Um, but yeah, you know, when I look at, you know, women like this, you know, they know how to fuck shit up, you know, it really, you know, it's empowering. It really is. It's inspiring because this is a literal pussy riot and uh, I'm here for it. So, yeah, in Mexico City, I'm reading from BBC, they had protests and clashes with the police and women fucking shit up. And uh, yeah, they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're fed up. So reading from BBC... Police and activists have clashed in Mexico City at a march to mark International Women's Day. Officers forced back protesters with tear gas and riot shields in the capital's main square, the Zocalo. The protesters were calling for the government to address the country's poor record on the murder of women, often referred to as femicide and gender-based violence. Government figures 
suggests at least 939 women were victims of femicide in 2020. That is crazy. Thousands of women, some with their daughters, attended the march in the Mexican capital on Monday. One girl was wearing, or one girl was seen carrying a sign reading, They haven't killed me, but I live in fear. At one point, some members of the crowd managed to pull down some of the large metal fencing from the National Palace using hammers and wooden poles. And this is just crazy. They're just like, they're just fucking pissed. Like, I love it. Um, I mean, not that, of course, it's unfortunate what they have to protest, but like, you know, seeing them fight back is good. So, yes, authorities erected the barrier ahead of the march. It was then covered in names of femicide victims by women's group groups. Uh, some riot officers used their shields to block the protesters from entering the Zocalo. Local paper El Universal said demonstrators set fire to the shields of some of the police officers. The, the flames were extinguished. Police, police used tear gas and batons to help disperse the crowd. At least 15 officers and four members of the public were injured, according to the local media. Uh, there were reports of police detaining both journalists and those in the crowd. Clashes between women's rights campaigners and police are becoming more common in Mexico City as activists say it was the only way the government will pay attention to them. They have accused President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador of ignoring the problem of violence against women. Last year, Mr. Lopez Obrador uh, claimed the issue of femicide has been manipulated by critics of his administration. What? Uh, last November... There were there was outrage across the country after police in the beach resort of Cancun fired shots during a protest against the killing of women. Two people were injured by bullets and two more were also hurt by the chaos which ensued. So, yeah, this is some real uh, anarcho-feminism here and they're just fucking shit up, lying fires, burning like effigies of uh, female mannequins. Like, this is some pretty insane shit, which... Is dope like i'm not complaining you know like when i see stuff like this i don't have a problem with i, I don't have an issue with it because you know what they're not targeting like they're not harassing people they're, they're you know that i should say bystanders right um or at least i haven't seen that uh they're not you know breaking into businesses you know mom and pop shops and stealing the items there or you know just looting in general they're just pissed and they're using that energy or projecting that energy where it has to go because they like what what else i mean like you know like what else they, they say women are crazy but like fuck dude like you you would go crazy if like you're saying hey this is a real issue and we're being ignored like yeah this is you know because there are a lot of moments where people ask like well would you would you want to be a woman and i honestly like I'm okay with being a dude. Like I'm, I'm okay. Like, of course, if I was a woman, I wouldn't shame myself for being a woman. But still, it's like, yeah, I'm. I like being a dude, even though I'm not white and I'm not in the top of the pole. But you know, you know, I can, relatively speaking, go out and do my business without having to carry a weapon on me and not have to worry. You know, but as a woman, like, there's so many things you have to take into account, and you have to tell your friends where you're going. And say, like, you want to go to the beach, you know, you have to, yeah, there's so many, I can't even imagine, fuck, that, that is stressful. Like, I, you know, 
like sometimes I get self-conscious when women are you know wary of me and you know keeping their distance but like I get it because yeah you don't know me and of course like guys are capable of anything I mean I'm like that with men also like because I don't know what he's capable of like so yeah don't want to continue too far but I, I do want to bring women's issues to the forefront on this program because it's of course you know we're talking about patriarchy and patriarchy in a lot of ways is the source of this collapse and uh, decline um and yeah we just have you know we, we want true egalitarian on this pro egalitarianism on this program and we truly want to empower women on this program i mean i was talking about uh female militias that were being formed in mexico because the cartel have been kidnapping and murdering all the able-bodied men so like yeah man you know uh, I mean, I'm going to stress it every time that I can, um, that if you're a woman, you should probably get a gun and learn how to shoot. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, this is the, we live in a dangerous world now, or we've always lived in a dangerous world. For, at least for women, it's certainly been dangerous. Um, and the gun is a great equalizer, you know? Hey, Jenny's got a gun. Watch out, you know? So, yeah. And, you know, you don't even need something big. Like, you can get, like, a little twenty two. You know, you can, you can have that in your handbag. Like, yeah, I mean, there's so many different options, you know. So I, I don't want to go too deep into that. But all I'm saying is that if I were a woman, I would have all kinds of guns with me, you know. But that's just me. So I'll continue on because that's in Mexico. But then there's also like female uh, demonstrations or, you know, uh, protests and riots that have been occurring in uh, the UK. There was a recently the... Uh, murder of a British woman at the hands of a police officer, Everard, and they had a demonstration a week ago that was uh, disrupted. It's so strange when you hear these statements by the police because they're saying, oh, well, we had to um, do it for their safety. You know, oh, it was a disruption that we had to do it for their safety, even though it's the police presence that causes that disruption. In that chaos, if the police hadn't showed up, the people would be doing their vigil and they would mourn the way that they need to mourn. Well, first off, if we didn't have police officers that were sexual predators, this wouldn't even happen. So, like, it's mainly the police. Yeah, it's at the root. It's the police. And they just keep fucking things up. So, yeah, UK is having their own protests. So, that happened. The, the vigil and that, you know, civil disruption happened. Of course, there were some serious photos, like... You know, the, the cops are the only group of people who can beat women on the streets and at home. Like, these are the worst of the worst, man. They're literal wife beaters. So, we have the police and demonstrations of the police and demonstrator clashes that occurred. But then we also have uh, clashes and demonstrations that have occurred uh, last night um, in Bristol. So, I'm reading from The Hill. Uh, demonstrators and police clashed in Sunday protests where thousands took to the street in Bristol, England in opposition to a bill that would give police more powers to, to restrict nonviolent protests. So in response to the vigil disruption, they, they implemented more uh, restrictions on protests. You know, trying to say it's like a COVID stuff, but it's clearly uh, repression and dissent. Um, yeah, so... Continuing, protesters gathered in Bristol's city center to demonstrate against the police crime, sentencing, and court bills 
that would permit officers to institute time and noise limits on street protests, Reuters reported. The demonstrators defied COVID-19 restrictions and rejected suggestions to participate in virtual protests in order to congregate in Bristol. Some protesters launched fireworks at officers, attempted to topple a police van and climb a police building and spray with graffiti, according to Reuters. Police in riot gear attempted to push people attempted to push back protesters with batons and shields. The Avon and Somerset police issued a statement in response to the demonstration saying that several hundred people gathered outside Bridewell police station and at least two police officers or two and at least two police vehicles were set on fire. Chief Superintendent Will White said a small minority of protesters turned a peaceful protest into a violent disorder during which two officers were sent to the hospital with one suffering a broken arm and the other having broken ribs. These scenes are absolutely disgraceful and they will be widely condemned by people across the city, he said, and there can never be any excuse for wanton disorder. These men and women out there with the intention of serving and protecting the public they should never be subjected to assault or abuse in this way, he added. Um, criticism of the policing bill comes after officers removed protesters and made arrests in response to a London vigil for Sarah Everard, who was killed. Wayne Cousins, a London police officer, was charged with allegedly murdering and kidnapping her. The bill existed before the Everard case. It came up for debate in Parliament two days before or two days after the London vigil that received the heavy police response. Okay, so I was incorrect about this bill being passed as a result of this visual crackdown, but, you know, still, the the fact that they had that and the police felt that they had to step in, even though people were trying to peacefully assemble, it's just, yeah, it just shows the situation that they're in in the UK. Um, yeah, the UK is certainly going to have lots of problems and as you know things unfold and yeah man of course we also have the monarchy scandal now with Meghan Markle because they can certainly these protesters I feel like they could certainly you know it's like a, a dominoes right toppling of the dominoes so it starts with this woman being murdered and so it becomes a protest uh well it becomes like a an event to mourn this woman passing and then it turned into a protest against police violence and of course the police cracked down and then it escalates to um you know protests against this lockdown and the inability to express oneself and then the institution and then eventually it goes to toppling the monarchy you know getting rid of that and that's what i guess these uh, police officers and a lot of these uh, institutions are afraid of because they want to preserve the monarchy so yeah, so who knows? Maybe this could be the start of something big in the UK. You know, they certainly had a riots. Uh, remember, if y'all remember the riots that occurred in London, I guess 2011. That that shit was me like medieval. Like when I look at the footage, like those people were out with machetes. Like it's a fucking wild man. Um, so who knows if something like that could prop up again, especially if their economic situation continues to deteriorate. But yeah. So that's in London, UK, Bristol, uh, something to keep an eye on there. Um, but yeah, given that I'm talking about the international field, I did want to talk at least some recent like US uh, moves geopolitically in the international field. 
um, especially with this new administration, because, you know, we voted, well, y'all voted. I don't know who else voted. I didn't vote for him. We voted for Joe Biden, and a lot of people were rationalizing, well, we can push him left. You know, it's better than Trump being in power. I mean, I guess so, but look at what's happening now. I mean, nothing's really changing, like not even on the international level. Nothing's changing. We're still having hostilities with Syria. I mean, we literally just bombed them, so that set the tone pretty, you know, out the gate. You know, less than 40 days in, we had to bomb Syria. Um, and now there's like different posturings occurring with Iran. And of course, there was also another statement released on Venezuela. They had like their, I don't know what the, the report was saying, like, well, there's still, you know, an acute national security threat with Venezuela. So we're going to maintain our position. So like, they're not even changing anything. Okay. And uh, they tried to make contact with North Korea. And of course, North Korea isn't responding. Uh, they had a conference with China, uh, like an open public conference with China in Alaska and China was pretty cold with us you know saying that we're not in a position to be negotiating and then Biden is calling Putin uh, a killer which he is I mean that's not a wrong thing to call him but it is ratcheting up ten it's increasing tensions with um, all these different players and you know it's not necessarily that we have to like appease them because I understand the, the, you know, the principle of appeasement and how that gets us nowhere. But we don't need open confrontation or hostility or I, I don't know. It's um because now we're seeing like this new world order form and we have, I guess, the allies you could call it, and the axis of evil as George Bush. <laughs> said you know and uh yeah man you know we're, we're entering a, a phase i think within these next four years we could see significant crisis and events occur that could bring us to the brink of world war three and i don't know if uh biden is in the mental state to make the right decision because you know you, you imagine if we had the cuban missile crisis but john f kennedy was a 78-year-old man. Like, I, I don't think things would have turned out the same way. I don't know. <sighs> Jeez, man. Anyway. So we have those um dynamics forming. Because, I mean, if we're going to talk about the different factions that are forming, we have, you know, Syria, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, China, Russia, Pakistan... Uh, they're all kind of just forming their own little ball, their, their own sphere. And then, of course, you have the West, NATO. Um, yeah, primarily capitalist systems. <laughs> yeah, man. So who knows? We could have World War Three either in this decade or in the 2030s, the 2040s. I mean, who knows when it's going to happen? Who knows? But, like, we're... It's, yeah, it doesn't seem to be backing down. The people don't seem to be backing down, and we're still, uh, you know, we're still playing chicken, I guess. This is how it's going to end. Um, so we have that, those dynamics forming. And also with the U.S., you know, Biden is trying to, 
I guess, posture himself saying that they're going to step away from dealing with Yemen. But then they have this caveat where, oh, well, they're, the munitions that we are giving to them is purely for self-defense, which like, like they could make any kind of bombing and say it was self-defense. So really nothing is changing in Yemen, or at least with our involvement with Saudi Arabia. Although there was the U.S. Treasury, you know, they are implementing sanctions against certain individuals linked to Khashoggi murder, Jamal Khashoggi murder. Um, and they effectively implicated uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, in uh, the attack or the murder. But they're not really going to do anything because they, they literally said that would just increase tensions and you know, ruin the relationships with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia because he's going to be the king. And uh, it's crazy, though. Like... You're you're saying that you don't want to sour relations with Saudi Arabia when they have credible links towards the uh, terrorist attacks of 9/11. So like, they don't really think highly of us, and this is purely for the oil man. It's just the same reason they want to go into Venezuela, want to go into Iran. It's the oil baby, and it's so hard to explain that to people. Like, I have more respect for the people who. Acknowledge it like, yes, it's it's for the oil rather than those. It's like, oh, you see, it's a humanitarian issue. And, you know, it's uh, we, you know, we just like the the guys who are straight to the point that, yes, this is for taking the resources because this will run out and we need everything. I'm like, OK, well, at least you're honest. So, yeah, that's what's happening in the international stage with the U.S. and the posturing of global powers. Uh, possible World War Three, but we'll continue with uh, a different crisis that's occurring in Lebanon, and this is a country that has historically witnessed collapse and civil war, and looks like it's on the verge of, you know, happening again. So I mean, we had that explosion in Beirut, and that is certainly a uh, watershed moment that just probably spelling the end of this country or at least like some some significant collapse or downfall so i'm reading from financial times and they're pointing at the lebanon crisis and how their prime minister is effectively stuck in office like he resigned but he's still technically in power because the new guy hasn't been inaugurated so he still has to deal with all these problems like he can't escape um, and he's on a salary that's less than 1000 a month in U.S. dollars. And their, their currency is already like plummeting. So, reading quote uh, from Financial Times. On a salary worth less than 1000 after the collapse of the local currency in charge of a broken economy and housebound due to security concerns, it is little surprise that Lebanon's caretaker prime minister is keen to quit. Quote, it is the only job in the world where you resign and then you're stuck, Hassan Daib told the Financial Times in an interview. He stepped down after the catastrophic explosion at Beirut port devastated the city in August last year. But the political bickering has stimmied the formation of a fresh cabinet led by Prime Minister-elect Saad Hariri. This meant Daib was, quote, still prime minister effectively you have to handle all the problems and you can see the problems how they're compounding end quote he said political dysfunction 
has pushed the fragile nation toward total economic collapse and infuriated Lebanese struggling to survive as hyperinflation soars and unemployment rises. In recent weeks, protesters have taken to the streets and set up roadblocks on main roads to vent their anger, the country's problems, a result of decades of mismanagement and corruption, and exacerbated by coronavirus and the port explosion, threatened to overwhelm the small Mediterranean nation. The World Bank estimates almost half of the population has been plunged into poverty. Daib describes the situation as acute financial disaster. The commander of Lebanon's army last week warned he did not have sufficient funds to cover the military's needs for the coming year. Mohamed Fami, caretaker interior minister, said the political failure was draining Lebanon's security forces, now unable to perform, quote, 90% of our duties. The government has also warned of future electricity shortages. Recovery hinges on a bailout from the IMF, but the caretaker government which has been waiting for months for the formation of a new administration, cannot negotiate one. So, quote, waiting an extra week for Hariri to form a cabinet is like aggravating the economy and financial situation an extra year, according to Daib. The university professor who presents himself as a technocrat without strong affiliations to a political party, Daib, was appointed prime minister in December 2019, a role reserved for a Sunni Muslim since the civil war ended in 1990. Lebanon has shared power between its religious sects, but the horse trading over positions creates huge delays. Daib, who wanted to hand over the role, described himself as a, quote, hostage of Lebanese politics of the way politicians have been running politics in this country for decades. Daib is in his comfortable West Beirut apartment rather than the prime minister's residence residents, the Grand Sea Rail, uh, because he has been advised to raise, he has been advised to minimize his movements, but has not been told what the specific threat is. Quote, I get a lot of security messages from different places, shrugged Daib. 90% of them turn out to be not true. He says he does not have daily briefings with security officials. Despite having previously served a term as education minister, Daib said he was surprised by the parliamentary resistance to reforms. Even those, or quote, even those who gave us the vote of confidence, a good percentage of them, including the Shia arm, worked against us after we became cabinet, he added. Iran-backed Shia Islamist movement Hezbollah, which has a powerful armed wing, was among the blocks that approved his ministers, a fact that had intensified Lebanon's international isolation. Daib said, quote, I have made a trip anywhere, or have I made a trip anywhere? Has anybody invited me? Has anybody responded to my willingness to go to the Arab region? He asked, there's a clear signal from everybody, not just the region, but internationally, to be careful not to open up financially and economically, because they considered this cabinet a Hezbollah cabinet. He insisted his cabinet was more independent than most. We are the furthest, we are the furthest away from Hezbollah. Daib, who oversaw Lebanon's first sovereign default a year ago, described the chaos of a cash-strapped government struggling with a broken exchange rate. Contractors are being paid partially. There are some delays, although thousands of public contracts were denominated, although thousands of public contracts were denominated in dollars. Everybody's getting paid in lira, 
We don't have dollars, he said, adding that different exchange rates were being used for payment, all of them far below the black market rate of about 13,000 lira to the dollar. In black market terms, Daib says his salary is now worth 1,000 per month. At the official rate, it is worth $7,300. The government owes $2 million to a German company that removed 52 containers of toxic chemicals from Lebanese ports. The toxic waste remains in Lebanon because one month after the company finished work, the government had not paid up. They blamed red tape. To address deepening impoverishment, Parliament passed a law allocating uh, 1.2 trillion lira to support poor families in some economic sectors. But with the central bank's foreign currency reserves having dwindled to $16 billion, this was resourced by printing money, said Daib. What else? Still, Daib said his cabinet had made a difference, citing in particular a financial recovery plan and one for the return of refugees to Syria. But he said the last year had been close to hell. I don't regret it, but I don't think any cabinet has dealt with so many parallel simultaneous crises. So yeah, so that's Lebanon and their situation. Uh, it's a pretty intense and uh, they're just, uh, you know, they're on the brink, essentially. So having to see that and, uh, you know, I've been exposed to Lebanese, you know, Lebanese food and Lebanese culture. So it's a real shame that they're, you know, struggling in such a way. And uh, yeah, there's been demonstrations and people out in the streets, and it's very easily, uh, very easy for them to slide back into civil war. And I'm sure you know a lot of the young people have already heard enough stories from their parents and grandparents, so like they, they do not want to go back to that. Um, so who knows what happens now? Really, I can't even imagine, you know, just being in that position right now. And already, like, you know. There is a lot of parallels to the Lebanon situation that are, you know, prescient here. Um, of course, the economic situation hasn't necessarily been as severe, but it's a, it's a very likely possibility, which is why I'm trying to trade in cryptocurrency, because who knows, maybe that could save us. I mean, anything goes, really. So that's in Lebanon, and their crisis there. And also, I wanted to continue with Haiti that I had spoke on earlier. And Haiti, in a lot of ways, is a. I mean, they, I mean, the the gangs are openly at war. I mean, I saw a Vice clip where they're just like shooting at each other, the gangs and the civilians. They can't. They're just cooped up in their homes because anytime they step out, they either get kidnapped or killed or something. They get robbed. It's crazy that this is right next to where my like my whole my homeland is like it's insane, and you know, I, I yeah Haiti is going to be an issue um, for foreign policy at least for the United States because the the more I research about the Haiti situation, there's been a lot of interventions in the last like twenty years actually by the United States. So who knows what happens now and how this unfolds and how they're going to enforce. Um, you know, this election and government because, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's very easy for things to unfold and to spiral out of control. And then, you know, of course you could have, uh, militias crossing into the Dominican Republic to raid and, 
get resources because there could be serious food issues. I mean, like it, it could get really nasty and who knows how this can unfold. Um, so yeah, I'm reading from Miami Herald and they're pointing out the UN Security Council and is keeping an eye on this and they're, you know, they're worried about the the instability and they're also worried about Moise's uh, one-man rule. Um, yeah, so read from Miami Herald, quote, uh, the United States voiced exasperation Monday with Haitian President Jovenel Moise's one-man rule, blaming his government for the country's delayed legislative vote during a UN Security Council meeting as the embattled leader tried to defend himself on the world stage. Representing the U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey De Laurentiis reminded fellow diplomats that legislative elections in Haiti were due in October 2019. Both before and after that date, he said the council, quote, repeatedly called on Haiti's political stakeholders to come together to set aside their differences and to find a way forward, end quote. Quote, they chose not to do so, De Laurentiis said. However, Ultimately, responsibility for creating an atmosphere conducive to free and fair elections and then conducting those elections must rest on the government. The United States is disturbed that Haiti's prolonged period of rule by decree continues. Uh, the U.S.'s stance as the Caribbean nation is embroiled in a worsening political crisis and the, international's community, and the international community expresses mounting concern at Moise's rule. In an unusual move, the president himself spoke at the meeting, accusing powerful, quote, powerful oligarchs in a radical opposition for his nation's woes. Diplomats weren't convinced, calling Haiti's deteriorating state of affairs under his leadership worrying and shocking. Quote, unpredictability looms large, St. Vincent and the Grenadines ambassador I. Ronda King said. Uh, Moise has been ruling by decree for over a year. Opposition leaders contend his time in office ended February, February 7th. Moise disagrees, saying he has another year as president. His detractors have gone so far as to install their own interim president. Speaking at the virtual event, Moise accused the opposition of creating armed gangs, said drug traffickers were behind a rogue police outfit known as Phantom 509, that has been carrying out flash protests across the country and attacking government property and dismissed concerns about attacks against journalists. He told the council that people dressed up as journalists attacked the police force. Moise also defended his overzealous use of executive orders and the removal of three Supreme Court judges, which had has been denounced as a violation of Haiti's constitution by a number of foreign diplomats and human rights groups. Uh, Quote, the violent attempts over many times to overthrow the constitutional government by corrupt people have left the situation very difficult, uh, Moise said in his remarks, which went 20 minutes over his allotted five minutes. This policy of chaos, what has this policy of chaos has meant the government has had to take off the gloves. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, latest report on Haiti released ahead of the Security Council meeting paints a worrisome, worrisome picture of Haiti's ongoing crisis. Human rights defenders, journalists, judges, lawyers, and others continue to be the target of threats and attacks, continue to be the target of threats and acts of intimidation with at least 13 documented cases between September and January, the report said. In the past 12 months, 
kidnappings increased by 200% compared with the previous year. The report found homicides were also up, increasing by 20% in 2020, with three quarters of the cases recorded in the western part of the country, which encompasses the Port-au-Prince metropolitan area. The human rights situation in Haiti continued to be negatively affected by the activity of gangs and the continued failure of state authorities to adequately protect citizens' rights to life and security, the report concluded. The report noted the government has said it is working to address public safety issues, increasing the budget for the Haiti National Police Force, but investigators also found scant impact on the Haitian criminal justice system. The UN leader nonetheless seemed to back Morsi's push to change the constitution, saying that, quote, a minimum consensus among all political stakeholders could help make it a success. The opposition has rejected his attempt to create a new Magna Carta, and there are questions over its legality. Haitian officials have placed $20 million in a UN-controlled fund for the constitutional referendum as well as legislative municipal local and presidential elections slated for the fall Guterres representative in Haiti Helen Lalim or Lime I should say noted that Moise's recent decrees effectively retiring three Supreme Court judges and appointing their replacements prompted several magistrates associations to go on strike and renewed protests demanding his departure from office she also noted the moves could further paralyze an already, an already dysfunctional justice system. Security Council members conveyed Monday that they view elections as the only way out of the crisis. Quote, I have no reservations at all in stating that this situation is untenable in the long term. France's assistant permanent representative, Natalie Broadhurst, Broadhurst said, adding that some of the decrees taken by the Haitian authorities are worrisome. Uh, the planned elections, Broadhurst said, were a step in the right direction, but they must contribute to an exit from the crisis and not add to the current confusion. Yeah, there's plenty going on here. But yeah, they, yeah they're, it's a pretty serious situation and the world is on it. The, worlds are the, the eyes of the world are on it. And, uh, you know, the Caribbean is relatively a peaceful place. So, you know, Haiti just seems to be that one spot that's troubled. Um, and again, this has everything to do with, you know, foreign meddling and uh, the history of colonialism and imperialism in there. Um, the exploitation of resources and the people of Haiti. So, you know, you have the international community being all concerned. Well, what's going on in Haiti? But then... The, the problems in Haiti are directly a result of foreign meddling. Um, and, you know, just, you know, the, the, the destruction of the environment. Um, in Haiti, they have severe deforestation issues. I mean, you look at Dominican Republic on a map, like from a satellite image, you look at Dominican Republic, there's trees, you know, and I'm not just, and it's not to say that they even take care of their environment. There's like a, this plastic litter all over the place, but, you know, the trees are there. You know, in some ways, like they haven't like deforested the areas, but then you look in Haiti, and it's like it's like slash and burn, like clear cut, like not a tree in sight in some areas. So that's of course affected the the quality of the soil, like literally, like just the climate. Like there's so many different factors. It, it's wild. Um, 
and it has to deal with like how the French uh, effectively just worked and just overdeveloped in those areas with sugarcane plantations. That's why they cut down the trees for sugarcane, and also because people use uh, wood burning uh, for heat and energy. So yeah, charcoal. Um, so there's a lot of different factors that it, it's a, it's a it's like a violent cycle that they're just stuck in. So. Yeah, it's really a shame. It's really um, distressing to see the situation there. So I just hope to bring it to the forefront and talk about it. But that's um, another thing that's happening in Haiti. And who knows? I mean, if this continues with Moisey, I mean, who knows? There could seriously be an intervention. So we'll just have to keep an eye on it. So that's in Haiti. And that's about what I wanted to talk about in this uh, international field. Um, and I did want to speak on um, some natural phenomenons that have been occurring so we've had some tectonic activities you know new zealand and japan there was a tsunami warning in new zealand and in japan they had like a 7.2 magnitude earthquake practically like 10 years from the last uh, major earthquake that 9.0 earthquake that occurred with the tsunamis so i mean luckily it wasn't the same event and japan just naturally gets uh, that kind of activity but yeah, it's interesting to see this tectonic activity and how different areas of the world experience earthquakes. You know, we're just waiting for that San Andreas fault, you know, for California to fall into the sea. I mean, I'm not looking forward to that. I mean, that would be a devastating event, but it's just something to pay attention to. Although there are, are people just, you know, they're, they're going to be like partying in the streets when they see that happening. So, I mean, that's, you know, them being, you know, just been that way and also in iceland there's been an eruption or they've had like clusters of they've had clusters of earthquakes and now they've had an eruption so that's something to keep an eye on you know because um there could definitely be a volcanic eruption that could just put a whole bunch of ash that could just you know cloud out the the sky and bring in an ice age i mean who knows who knows what could happen yeah so that's what's been happening recently nothing devastating as of yet but who knows what where other faults and uh different uh plates the continental tectonic plates what, what else they can do and move so there's that at least to pay attention to but i wanted to talk about also you know, speaking on like air quality, the, a pretty severe dust storm that has occurred in China and just affecting the air quality there. I mean, this is like um, like Blade Runner, you know, uh, just, you know, seeing all the dust and the haze in the air. And, you know, I, I need to get a gas mask or some kind of respiration system because I could certainly see something like this happening here. In fact, actually, there was a dust storm that, that was up in like the panhandle or something. So... It's not out of the question. Um, so yeah, so I'm reading this from Financial Times. Uh, when Xi Jinping gathered top Communist Party officials in Beijing earlier this month to warn that peaking carbon dioxide emissions by 2030 would be a, quote, great examination for the leadership, the Chinese president's message was punctuated by an orange cloud that darkened the city's skies. China's worst dust storm in a decade led to record readings of harmful fine particulate matter at the city's air quality monitoring stations. 
In Mongolia, the storm left six people dead and dozens missing. The dust storm has also underscored warnings from environmentalists that global improvement to air quality from coronavirus-induced lockdowns may prove to be a fleeting respite from worsening greenhouse emissions if major economies fail to prioritize sustainability and stimulus packages. Extreme weather events played out in outside extreme weather events played out an outsized role in global air pollution last year, even as lockdowns meant the concentrations of PM 2.5, the microscopic particulate matter that worsens respiratory diseases, fell in 65% of cities monitored by IQ Air, a Swiss air pollution tracking company, and they have a bit of a you know, a graph IQ Air. And it's just showing the different spikes in air quality in Beijing. And then in the recent weeks or months, it's uh, spiked at its highest at 150. Uh, let's see, what's the measure? Okay, so 150 micrograms per cubic meter. That's actually pretty, yeah, dense. So, um, yes, yeah, so record wildfires in the USA, Australia, Siberia, and South America caused some of the only worsening air quality to be recorded globally in IQ Air in Sao Paulo, Los Angeles, and Melbourne. The same trend was apparent in China, where desert oasis cities such as Hotan and Kashgar in the northwestern Tarim Basin suffered the worst air quality as dust interacted with rising fossil fuel emissions to create extreme pollution episodes. In recent decades, seasonal storms that sweep Dirt down from the Gobi Desert to Beijing have become less frequent in part because of a vast government campaign to plant a green Great Wall of trees across northern China, but the geography of the Mongolian Plateau makes the region especially vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Temperatures in Mongolia rose by 2.24 degrees from 1940 to 2015, triple the global average. Du Shiwei a researcher at the state-run Chinese Academy of Social Sciences told state broadcaster CCTV this week that Mongolia will have the earliest ecological reaction to extreme weather because of its high altitude and sparse vegetation. Avoiding the worst effects of climate change in Mongolia will in large part be determined by decisions in China, the world's largest emitter. Despite Xi's pledge last year to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2060, China's five-year economic blueprint released this month disappointed those who had hoped for strict curbs on polluting coal power plants. Even before the dust storm, Beijing was mired in a relapse of poor air quality at levels similar to 2016, caused by soaring productions of steel, cement, and aluminum. So yeah, they're pointing towards their industrial activity. They're uh, one of the leading emitters of carbon emissions. And they have this uh, seasonal dust storms as a result of the uh, uh, wind activity from the Gobi Desert and also just other other deserts in the region. Um, yeah, it's pretty severe. Um, yeah, they, they've had it, this happens quite a bit actually. These uh, dust storms um, compounded with the air quality of their emissions. So yeah, people die from this a lot. Um, it's pretty severe the air quality issues that they have in China. So. Yeah, you know, again, this is like Blade Runner in a lot of ways. So they're certainly going to, I mean, like I could certainly see them just having like respirators, like masks and um, 
not even like a gas mask, just like a little thing that you put over your nose and mouth. Who, who knows? Um, it'll be it's going to be interesting to see like fashion wear and accessories um, as we continue as a civilization because the air quality is going to be an issue and people are just going to find a way to make it like fashionable, you know, because I mean, you already saw with the masks here with the COVID um, pandemic and people were like accessorizing it or, you know, adding, you know, I saw one person with a mask on it's like donuts or, you know, they're, they're making it cute or whatever, but it, it just becomes like, it becomes like your shirt. Like you just have to wear it when you're going outside, you know? I mean, it's gonna be no. It's gonna be no shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service. That's what it's gonna end up being, you know. So, yeah. So that's the air quality and air pollution problems that are in Beijing, and we also had some dust storms that occurred in uh, Texas, you know, as a, as a result of some uh, weather patterns. Um, yeah. So I at least want to talk about that because those weather patterns they had the dust storms in Texas, but we also had tornadoes. Um, in Texas and just in the deep south in general, uh, pretty severe uh, tornado storms that have been occurring. So uh, reading this from USA Today. So yeah, storms that battered portions of Alabama and Mississippi Wednesday moved into Georgia and Florida Thursday, as forecasters warned of a day of severe weather across much of the southeast. While an official count has yet to be released for Wednesday's storms, there were reports of at least 24 tornadoes in five states and damage to dozens of homes. According to the Weather Channel, uh, forecasters issued a string of tornado warnings Thursday morning around the region where Alabama, Georgia, and Florida intersect. There were worries the storms would intensify as they moved into South Carolina and North Carolina Tuesday or Thursday afternoon, but they were mostly stayed, but they mostly stayed below severe limits. At least one person died, and at least four tornadoes have been confirmed in Mississippi after storms swept through the state Tuesday and Wednesday. Mallory White, External Affairs Director for the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, uh, said officials are still reviewing assessments for from various counties. Quote, this is very, very preliminary and can definitely change, White said. Early reports indicate at least four tornadoes have been confirmed. White said the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is waiting to get confirmation on 14 other possible tornadoes from the National Weather Service. About 20,000 homes and businesses were without power, and the Weather Service said at least two people were hurt when an apparent tornado struck southwest of Alabama, or struck southwest Alabama, destroying a house. Anyway, um, the highest risk for dangerous storms Thursday will be along the coast of North and South Carolina, AccuWeather said, quote, uh, so scattered severe thunderstorms are expected through this evening from North Florida and South Georgia, northeastward into the Carolinas and extreme, south, and extreme Southeast Virginia, the National Weather Service's Storm Prediction Center said, quote, significant tornadoes, wind damage, and large hail will be possible from morning into afternoon, the Storm Prediction Center said, quote, Severe thunderstorms will also be possible from parts of the eastern Gulf Coast into the southern and central Appalachians. Forecasters advise residents in potential danger to keep monitoring conditions closely and be prepared to shelter immediately. In North Carolina, WGHP-TV meteorologist Van Denton 
ordered everyone off the set during the 5 p.m. broadcast and into a makeup room to shelter in place for a few minutes after a storm with a tornado warning moves right over the station. Quote, I've never heard the roof rattle like that before. We've never had to leave the studio during a broadcast, said anchor Neil McNeil. That's an interesting name. Who has been with the station 37 years. In South Carolina, the severe weather led the state Senate president to caution senators to stay home Thursday while urging staff to work remotely for their safety. House Speaker Jay Lucas said the chamber would meet less than an hour Thursday to take up routine motions in advance of a budget debate next week, then adjourn. Quote, if you are in a situation where it is perilous that you come, I'm asking you not to come, Lucas said. If you can come, give us a quorum and do these few things we need to do, and we will be out of here in a hurry. End quote. So, yeah. So that was happening in Georgia and Alabama and other southern states um, dealing with the pain or dealing with these storms. And yeah, these um, yeah, these storms they can certainly um, be bad. These like tornado clusters. I mean, I remember um, I think it was 2011. Alabama had like 300 tornadoes in a month. Like that was seriously like a disaster situation for them. So yeah, and you know, the U.S. is a kind of uh, special when it comes to these like tornado storms. Like I don't really see any other country with tornadoes. I mean, they they get it, but like not. In the way the United States gets it, I guess it's just our climate and the geography and the way weather patterns move and jet streams and there's a whole bunch of stuff really. So, yeah. So that's what I wanted to at least highlight there. And they're pointing at a possible uh, root of this being the, um, you know, the, the hyperactive tornado season. Um they're kind of like making a link between La Nina and how this is also um, a similar link that occurred in 2011, as I mentioned with the Alabama storms. So, again, this is very much tied with climate change and weather events and the ocean temperature movement. So there's a whole bunch of stuff we could talk. So I'm just reading from CNN, right? So, uh, quote, a massive cold air outbreak over the central U.S. in early February set hundreds of cold temperature records stretching the power grid in Texas and leaving millions without power. Sound familiar? The year was 2011 when a moderate La Nina weather pattern and an active jet stream generated the scenario that's almost identical to what we've experienced for so far in 2021. The weather events that followed 2011's extreme cold snap now have meteorologists concerned that the U.S. could be in for a above-normal tornado activity this spring. The past few months have seen the strongest La Nina signal since the winter of 2010-2011, so the question is whether this spring continues to mirror that year, which ended up the costliest, costliest on record for tornadoes and the deadliest in nearly 100 years. Quote, severe weather season is really a collection of several short weather events, and anticipating individual events at long lead times is usually tricky. Sam Lilo atmospheric researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder told CNN, quote, what we can say instead is whether the probability of the ingredients coming together for these events is higher or lower than normal. This year, it is higher than normal. Uh, and then they're pointing at 2011 being the deadliest season in modern history. Uh, quote, the remarkable tornado season of 2011 was the deadliest in modern times 
with over 550 fatalities, second only to 1925's total of 794 tornado deaths. Almost all the deaths in 2011 occurred during the extremely active April or extremely active months of April and May. That April alone saw 875 confirmed tornadoes, more than any month on record. The super outbreak on April 27th recorded 226 tornadoes, the most tornadoes ever observed on a single day, including destructive twisters in Birmingham and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Just a few weeks later, Joplin, Missouri was hit with a top-scale E5 EF5 tornado that killed more than 160 people. It was the deadliest tornado in over 60 years, as well as the costliest tornado on record, with nearly $3 billion in direct damages. Looking back on 2011, it was the sheer magnitude of the number of events and the fact that so many pot hit and the fact that so many hit populated areas and of course the incredibly high toll in terms of deaths, injuries and dollar damage, said Bill Bunting, Chief of Forecast Operations for the National Weather Services Storm Prediction Center. While localized and small scale weather features played roles in setting up both of these tragic days, the overall large weather patterns that fed into the historic 2011 tornado season are worth looking at to determine the risk for similar days this year. Quote, every year has some potential for tornado outbreaks. It's just a matter of trying to accurately predict which as much lead, with as much lead time as possible, where that area is likely to be, and then making sure the people are prepared and have a plan, Bunting said. Active forecast for the spring to paint a picture of what the coming weeks to months weather may look like, forecasters look to La Nina and other global climate and weather patterns such as the Arctic Oscillation, which is different than the polar vortex, to craft what are called subseasonal forecasts. Lilo runs one of these models that, quote, focuses on the slow, predictable parts of the atmosphere to create forecasts several weeks in advance. Prediction models like it are important for things like seasonal forecasts of temperatures, which are used in energy trading markets and hurricane season forecasts released each year by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association or Administration. Lilo's model recently predicted with a month of lead time the Arctic outbreak that gripped the central U.S. this February. Now the focus shifts to what these long-term patterns could reveal as we head into the spring severe season. Quote, in general, the forecasts are showing ridging with above normal temperatures in the south, cooler to the north, and that temperature gradient enhancing the jet stream across the center of the U.S. Lilo said this jet stream is the main storm track across the middle latitudes of the northern hemisphere and divides colder air to the north and warmer air to the south. During La Nina, stronger temperature differences tend to develop between hot and humid air in the southern U.S. and cooler and drier air in the north. This sets up a faster jet stream that can drive severe weather outbreaks. The jet stream holds all the potential for stronger storm systems and severe weather, Lilo said. In March, the southern U.S. is historically the area where severe storms, including tornadoes, are more likely. Then, as the northern hemisphere begins to warm, the bullseye for tornadoes will shift west into the central U.S. and eventually north into the northern plains come summer. The jet stream pattern is not unfavorable for severe weather as we get a little bit 
later into March and certainly beyond, Bunting said. Quote, if that pattern holds, very strong wind fields down across the Gulf Coast in proximity to warm, moist air suggest the Gulf Coast in the near term may be an area to watch closely. How La Nina relates to tornadoes, similar to this year, a moderate La Nina was the main feature of 2011. La Nina and its counterpart El Nino can play a significant role in the position of the jet stream, temperature, and precipitation patterns over the U.S., which all play a role in the formation of severe weather. The El Nino or La Nina conditions in the winter months can be used to help pinpoint the tornado frequency during the peak of severe storm season in spring. Recent studies have found, and there's like a little sliding bar. So I'm trying to see. Okay, so they have one for El Nino. And, well, I don't have the screen cap on, but I'm just going over what happens over La Nina. And as you hit into La Nina, you know, you have the central, like, southern area that certainly um, creates um, possibility for, for severe storm events. But then you go over to El Nino and it's less severe or frequent. So yeah, uh, quote, the flow of warm human air from the Gulf Coast increases in strength during springs that follow La Nina, which produces the fuel needed to, to form storms. Jason Furtado, assistant professor of meteorology at the University of Oklahoma said, the stronger flow increases the low level wind shear that also favors the formation of tornadoes and hailstorms the past several months have featured the strongest La Nina since 2011, and this pattern is expected to continue to impact weather over the next several months. Uh, though through the heart of severe weather season, according to the NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. Yeah, so this is a pretty lengthy article, and it goes into depth about uh, different prepared or I mean different uh, parallels between 2011 and this year. So. Effectively, if you're in an area that is prone to hurricanes or I should say tornadoes, it's probably best to prepare. I mean, if you're if you get tornadoes, then you probably already know how to prepare for it. Actually, that last year we had a tornado in our area and it quite literally formed like it was a it was an F3 tornado, which is pretty, pretty bad. Actually, like this, any, any tornado is bad and F3 is like a major one um, and it literally formed like like a mile to the north of us and it went and hit this uh, trailer park community. So yeah, man, like we get tornadoes here too. So, and, and I'm on the third floor, so I'm trying to figure out like where I would hide. And yeah, what I, I mean, like, cause when you get the warning, you, you got to hunker down. So yeah, I've never had to deal with that. So that's what they're saying about the springtime season, uh, hurricanes there or tornadoes there, but they are pointing to, the hurricane season and their considerations of um, pushing the start of the season into May. And I'm reading from weather.com. So the NOAA is considering moving up the official start date of the Atlantic hurricane season after strings of years when the first name hurricane or storm in the basin has happened before June 1st. A team from the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service will likely take up this topic this spring, NHC spokesperson and meteorologist Dennis Feltgen confirmed in an email to weather.com Friday. 
A recommendation was made at the most recent NOAA Hurricane Conference in December. Team be assembled this year to discuss the ideas. Falcon said in a statement, quote, Considerations for the team would include a determination of the quantitative threshold for adding or removing dates from the official Atlantic hurricane season, he said. Then an examination would need to take place regarding the need for and potential ramifications of potentially moving the beginning of the hurricane season to May 15th. Currently, the Atlantic hurricane season officially runs from June 1st to November 30th. The original dates were set in 1935 when a new hurricane warning network was set up with a special telegraph line that operated from June 15th to November 15th, according to the NOAA. Those dates were changed in 1965 to coincide with the first day and last days of the month. They've remained the same ever since. Meanwhile, the unofficial kickoff of the season has moved up. Tropical Storm Arthur formed last year on May 16th, marking the sixth consecutive year that a named storm formed before June 1st. Prior to that, at least one named storm had developed before June 1st, each hurricane season since 2015, some of which had impacts in the United States and elsewhere in the Atlantic Basin. In fact, tropical storms have occurred in every month of the year. Any change in dates would affect only the Atlantic hurricane season and would put in line with the Eastern Pacific hurricane season. Earlier named storms are the topic of much research especially as this might relate to the climate change or earlier named storms are the topic of much research, especially as they might relate to climate change. Hurricanes are fueled by warmer ocean temperatures and most often occur in the summer and late fall. The fact that storms are being identified at different times of the year is often attributed to better technology, including high definition satellites. Quote, named storms have formed prior to the official start of the hurricane season in about half of the past uh, 10 to 15 years, including each uh, each of the past six years, Felton said, many of the May systems are short-lived hybrid subtropical systems that are now being identified because of better monitoring and policy changes that now name subtropical storms. The NHC has already decided on one change this year that signals a transition toward earlier storm monitoring. The agency will begin issuing its familiar tropical weather outlooks which provide the probability of tropical cyclone formations during the next two and five days on March 15th. The NHC issued 36 special TWOs before June 1st last year, according to Falcon. Hurricane season dates are important not just to forecasters, but also to emergency management officials who use the dates for planning purposes and public awareness campaigns. Last year turned out to be a historic hurricane season with a record 12 named hurricanes or storms making landfall in the U.S. And they have a list of different names for the hurricane uh, season for 2021. And I'll just go ahead and list them. So there's Anna, Bill, Claudette, Danny, Elsa, Fred, Grace, Henry, Ida, Julian, Kate, Larry, Mindy, Nicholas, Odette, Peter, Rose, Sam, Teresa, Victor, Wanda. And then after that, they'll do the alpha, uh, beta, gamma, whatever. So yeah, so those are the names this year, and we'll see which one is uh, the the big one. Yeah, so there's that to look forward to. So definitely have your hurricane preps in order. I know I'll certainly keep in lookout. 
And, you know, I kind of like living out here because it's not in Houston where you're, you know, you're kind of like, you're barely like a few feet above sea level, basically. So it's very easy for the water to pool up, especially if we get like a Hurricane Harvey level. I mean, like that was like billions of gallons dumped on us in like the course of a week. So we could definitely have that again this year. Who knows? I mean, we we missed a, a huge one. Um, I think it was Laura, right? Yeah, it was like a five hurricane five or category five, category four, and it was like we were expecting that to hit us, but it hit Louisiana. So it was bad for them. But if that storm hit Houston directly, it would have been like a Hurricane Katrina level disaster, honestly. So we'll see what happens with this storm. You know, we'll we'll storm season and we'll just talk about it then. Um, but that's uh, what I wanted to speak on for this episode and had a lot to say. So thank you all for sticking with me and listening in on my banter and ranting. Yeah, it's just, you know, trying to hone my craft. And, you know, I decided, you know, I was going to just quit my job and, you know, focus on this program. Although I do a lot. I still do a lot of sitting around and just doing some gig work to pay the bills. But, yeah, you know, I just wanted to focus on this more and see what else I can grow with it but you know I at least want to talk about you know before I wrap up with this program just some different like crypto stuff that I've been doing at the very least you know I can recommend the channel uh, called coin bureau uh, I'd certainly he it seems like a trustworthy channel to listen to I mean it's not financial advice but it's certainly a good way to research on cryptocurrency because I, I truly do think that fiat is is not necessarily on its last legs, but like it's certainly uh, buckling, if you know what I mean. So, you know, just making some investments and trying to, you know, see watch it grow. And we'll see, man, you know, because, you know, I, I can certainly see some form of like a technocratic crypto or cyberpunk dystopia, like somehow managing to keep things together. And cryptocurrency could definitely save your ass, you know. So, who knows? I mean, one thing I like about the Corn Bureau channel is they were talking about Harmony. They were talking about VeChain and CRO. And I had already been trading those before I even knew about this channel. So, the fact that they were saying favorable things about those coins that I had been trading, it for me, it's promising. So, you know, again, just got to research and, you know... I just need to be better with my budgeting, but honestly, like, who knows, 2021 can be a make or break year for cryptocurrency, and hey, you know, if I make the right investments, I could walk away with a pretty good profit, you know? So anyway, that's um, at least what's happening now, or, you know, happening there, and uh, at least with this uh, channel, you know, just sticking around and just talking and, you know, posting whenever I can, you know, looking up and researching. Um... If you follow my Twitter, yeah, you know, I'm still very much a boomer on that site. Honestly, like, I just try not to live my life on social media. It's, I mean, obviously, it's bad for your mental health, you know, trying to get out more, especially with the springtime. So trying to work out more. Um, I need to get, you know, I don't need a summer bod, but I need to shed a couple pounds because I'm a bit thick. But, you know, I kind of like my thickness a bit, actually. So anyway... So there's that. There's uh, that's the show. So 
follow me, Collapse Talk Pod. Those are my handles for Instagram and Twitter. So you can just follow, follow me there if you feel, although I'm, I could be more active. Honestly, I just need a second person to be working on social media. You know, I just need a second. That's really it. I need I need my Jamie. I need my Ben, Av- ben Avery. You know, I, I need somebody who has a better idea on what they're doing. But of course, in this program, we're talking about some really edgy material and content and topics. So I would need somebody who's at least on the same wavelength as me, you know? So that that's a bit of a difficult hurdle to jump. But, you know, if I keep to it and if I keep working like this, we can definitely, I could definitely find somebody who, who would want to collaborate. So there's that. Thanks for listening. Hope y'all are, you know, keeping your heads up and doing well and, you know, making some money. You know, this is, this is the time to make some money, you know? I just hope that y'all are pulling through. You know, I've certainly been... I've had good days and I've had some really shitty days recently. And, you know, I just try to do my best, right? So there's that. Um, Hope you all are doing well. And, you know, thanks for listening. So I'll see you on the next one.